Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore Latinx stories around spirituality, identity, and culture. This podcast is brought to you by Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ Latinx ministry within the United Church of Christ. My name is Taylor Ramaj. I'm an author, editor, and host of this podcast. I come from a Puerto Rican mother and a father of various Western European ancestries. I'm very excited to share this first episode with you all, but I've got just a few little notes before we get started. First, I want to thank you for your grace and patience with the mic quality, which will be what it is for at least the first few episodes until I get myself a proper mic. Second, I want to say a bit about the toolkits we mentioned near the end of the podcast. Proyecto has created two workshop toolkits centering Latinx voices and experiences in church settings. The first is about dismantling racism, and the second is about LGBTQ inclusion. As of this recording, we are super, super close to publishing these widely, but once they're out there, you'll be able to download copies and use them in your own settings. My guest today is the Reverend Edwin Perez Jr., and folks, we really get into some powerful stuff here. In true first podcast fashion, though, I accidentally deleted the first 10 seconds of our conversation, but fortunately, you're not missing out on much. Just Edwin giving his name and pronouns, which are he, him, his in English and el in Spanish. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's move right on into our encuentro with Edwin. from Puerto Rico. I come from Puerto Rico, sort of, on my, on my mother's side, but you, you actually lived there for a little bit of your life. Is that right? Correct. Most of my life, I lived, um, well, I've, I spent most of my life in Connecticut, um, but there, uh, when I was little, uh, we moved back to Puerto Rico up until I was five years old, and then my mother decided, uh, you know what, uh, let's move back to Connecticut, and hence, here we are. <laughs> In New Haven, Connecticut. Well, it's a lot colder, so why did she make that decision? <laughs> uh, well, let's just say that the weather wasn't the factor that she decided upon, right? There was a lot of other socioeconomic uh, opportunities here. And my uncle had moved here first. And so slowly, uh, different members of my family started sort of, you know, moving here and finding work. And they just sort of settled here. And I'm dying to eventually leave this weather. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else can relate, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I'm not here because of the weather. I think I'm here because of family and the connections I've made and, and the community that I have built around me and that I have been a part of uh, since we've been here. So, Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. And that's totally true about... I mean, at least it's true with a lot of my family members on my mother's side. A lot of people who used to live on the island now don't. I still have some family on the island, but, you know, a lot of cousins left. My uncle left for a little bit. Now he's back there. So I would say that that's a pretty common experience for a lot of Puerto Ricans. So what's a good memory that you have about Puerto Rico? Well, my grandmother uh, raised my younger cousin for a personal reason my aunt couldn't couldn't take care of him and so she decided that our grandmother was the the best uh, choice at the time and so my grandmother raised essentially my younger cousin when we visited back when we often every year we would go in the summer uh, at least a month uh, and spend some time at our home there you know i would go and play with my cousin uh, we'd go and play with my other cousins. And so I have had, I, I've made lots of memories of playing and running and just, there's a lot of fun memories, you know, from Puerto Rico. You know, I have nothing but uh, fond memories except for that uh, Hurricane George in 98, which was a little scary. Nowhere as near as Hurricane Maria, but I was there for that one and uh, for Hurricane George. And But besides that, Besides the, the, the fear and the uncertainty that 
many of us are even feeling now with this pandemic, I think as a child, when you're a child, you don't really, you don't really process things the same. And so now as an adult, I have a bit more understanding, a bit more control over my own life. But as a child, you don't get that, right? So apart from that not so great memory, I would say that I have lots of fun memories playing with my cousins, running around in the, like out in the, I can't even call it the woods. It's not, I don't think it's called the woods. Like the jungle, I guess. I don't know. I don't, yeah, El Campo, right. Yeah. yeah, El Campo, right? Like I don't, the country, I like out in, you know, in the mountains where we're from, we're from Lare, Puerto Rico. Lares is, is a small municipality sitting up on a plateau, right? In the middle, in, in a valley, but, but in a high valley, right? And, um, you know, our, our neighborhood is all, all campo, you know, it's all country. My cousins and I, we would uh, rack up on snacks. We would go to the little bodega. Well, we don't call them bodegas in Puerto Rico. We call them colmado. So here we call them bodegas, but in Puerto Rico we call them colmado. And we would go and get all of the candy, Puerto Rican candy we can find. And since my my aunt was married to the the shop owner's son. We, I used to get candy for free. <laughs> so, nice. So we used to go off on adventures and, you know, or, or play in my grandfather's farm, animal farm, and, and go pet the animals that weren't necessarily domesticated. <laughs> so meaning that they weren't always friendly, right? But those are the fun memories that I have and that I share with my cousins, you know, the, the one that was raised, you know, with my grandmother and the other on my dad's side, which... We're on the other side of town, but all wonderful places that I, I still, you know, when I go, I, I, I spend time with my family, with my grandparents. I, he still has his animal farm. And so I guess to add to your question, I, I hope to make many more memories. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have I have family who they, they live in the in the mountains El Campo. I will need though. They, they live like in that area. And just, uh, I mean. Yeah, yeah, going there is fantastic. The first time that I really went there and had memories of it, we went to my great Aunt Luisa's house, and she her house is literally, like, built into the mountainside. She has a wraparound veranda, and just you go out on the balcony, and it's just this steep, steep mountains, tropical mountains all the way down. She's got plantains mm-hmm. just, like, grown in her yard, and she can just go outside. Yes, and, right, right, exactly. <laughs> you, you could just take a machete and just get your plantains, and, and the roosters are making all kinds of noise at all kinds of hours of the day, and then the coquis come out, and, you know, it's just... It's, yeah, at night, in the yeah, evening. Yeah, yeah. It, it's wonderful. So... You know, Puerto Ricans and, and certainly all um, Latinx have a strong sense of, of identity. What is your sense of your own identity and what helps you to connect to or express it? You know, I, I think that as a Christian, the sense of being part of a body, right? That there, there's something unique about me and there's, I definitely feel that I am in my diversity unique. And, and I have this individual identity, right? But in terms of the collective, in terms of the, the body, like as a Christian, the body of Christ, like I have a co- communal identity. And in that same way, maybe it's been my faith that, ha- that has allowed me to see it this way also with my Latinx identity. Whereas I have my individual, there's, an, uh, there's two facets, my individual identity and also that which connects with others. And so, and all others before me and my ancestors, including the Taino, including the West African, including the Spaniard, you know, thinking about all those that came before me and thinking about the community to which I belong, my sense of identity cannot exist. However, even my individual one, as I see it, doesn't exist without the collective body, without the Boricuas, without you know, el pueblo, you know, and I, and I think that I'm, I'm fortunate and I feel blessed, right, to be a part of this body of Latinx people called Boricuas, you know, and we're so proud of that, you know, and, and maybe it's because we've been through a lot and like so many other Spanish-speaking countries and, and Latinx countries, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe that the resilience in our blood, maybe the resilience in our character and our personalities. That has 
been part of what has made me in my own individual identity who I am. And so I, I feel like there's a, like I said, an individual sense and also that part which I cannot remove of myself, right, that is connected to each and every one of the, of the community that exists now and that also existed in the past. Yeah, and when we, we were uh, talking a little bit before uh, recording the podcast and just getting some notes together, and you said something that is just really in- intriguing, I would love to, um, to dive into it a little bit. You, you noted that y- you could have lost your Latinx identity in the States. Tell me about that. Let's, let's unpack that. Like, what, what is that experience, and how did you almost lose it, and then how did you stop yourself from losing it? Well, I'll, I'll start with the language, right? It, it, you know, it's, it's really easy for folks to move from whatever, whatever Spanish-speaking country you know, they're from, and it's easy for them to, like, for, to, to move here and to raise their kids here. It's easy for, them, for their kids to not continue with the culture or not continue with the language, right? Because we're so obsessed with blending in. Right? And this may happen with, I can't speak for other, other countries, other ethnicities, but when you emigrate to another country, you always run the risk of assimilating, right? And which, which means that you are taking up another culture that isn't your own and you're just sort of diving deep into the culture and, and to blend in basically, right? And so where do we find that balance between trying to blend in and at the same time, maintain your identity and maintain who you are and, and, and who you, who your, you know, your, your ancestors, you know, that are a part of you. Like, how, how do you keep that? Like, how do you not lose that uniqueness, that beauty that exists in diversity, right? In all of your culture. And especially when perhaps society, the society that you're moving to, or that you just move into, especially if they don't, really care for your culture or they don't really care to understand your culture or your ethnic tradition and so it seems as though there's always that risk of having this society that you have emigrated to try to coerce even in a not not so blatant way right because somebody especially up here in the north right like i mean down south you i'm and not just and not just on South, but, but in other places of the states of the United States, you may hear, you know, blatant racism, right? But you may also hear things that may not even sound to be racist or or ethnocentrist at first. But once you start looking at the whole picture and systematically, when once you start looking or systemically, when you start looking at systems that exist and and the, just the way things are, you start seeing that. For example, my siblings, I have younger siblings on my mother's side, and they don't really speak Spanish as much. You know, I think, I think my little sister speaks much more Spanish or cares more for Spanish than my brothers do. And that scares me a bit. And that could have been me, but I thank God that my first language was Spanish. You know, I thank God that I was able to learn English at an early age, yeah, but that I was able to... You know, I was able to just maintain the culture and the language and remember. And I think that those memories that I made when I was younger, those memories, that, that, that exposure, is what allowed me to stay connected. And oftentimes, I'm not a parent right now. And I don't think you are either, Taylor. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> I mean, if you count my dogs, then maybe, yeah, I'm a parent. <laughs> But they can't speak Spanish either. Um, but they can understand it. But I, I think it was the exposure. You know, I think if we if we try to limit the exposure because we want to blend in, because we want to be like everybody else, you know, we don't want to have an accent. We 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 frown upon accents. See, I'm I'm touching into other things that that we were probably not going to talk about. That's fine. But let's let's mention them anyway, right? You know, like colorism that is rooted in racism among Spanish-speaking countries and territories like Puerto Rico, uh, which is a colonized territory of the United States, and that has never 
been allowed the opportunity to exist as an independent country. Although it has everything that any country needs, right, to be its own entity, right, its own culture, its own food, its language, a different language, you know, all these things, you know, traditions and subcultures. But there's so many other things that we risk, you know, and so we try to blend in. And, and with this problem of colorism, we celebrate the lighter shades of brown. We celebrate the, the passing, quote unquote, passing Latinos or Latines. You know, and it, it's unfortunate. You know, and I, I just, I'm, I'm just grateful. I have this sense of gratitude that I have not been dealt with that deck of cards, that I was able to become exposed enough. And even if I didn't live in Puerto Rico, I was still exposed to the culture around my family, right? I still spoke Spanish at home. You know, I, I fought with my mother, and if she's listening at some point, <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry that I threw you under the bus. But, but you know, I, I you know I used to fight with my mom. I said, Mom, Mommy, you know, habla español a los nenes, you know, speak Spanish to, to, the, to the kids, to my siblings, because they're going to lose it if they don't use it, right? That has been my fear. And, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't tell my mother how to parent my younger siblings. You know, I, I know how she parented me and I'm grateful. And I, in, in many ways, I wish that they had the same exposure, you know. And exposure doesn't always mean that you have to be geographically located, right, in your, in your home, you know, your origin, country of origin. It means that we have to make space, right? We have to make space for our ethnicity, uh, make space for our culture, our tradition, honor that. Yeah, I, I really I really connect to so much of, of what you said. My experience, as you know, because we've talked before, was that I didn't grow up speaking Spanish in my house, largely. And I know that my mom caught flack from the family for that. And, you know, she has her reasons for why... I didn't grow up speaking Spanish in the house, and those reasons are complex and, and many. But the reality, the result of it is that, you know, I, I did have this sense of disconnection in that way, but I had connection in other ways because my family, we were still fortunate enough to be able to go to Puerto Rico almost every summer when I was growing up. So I, I still visited abuela and she cooked for like I ate her food that she would cook in her house and like I, I did get to have some of these experiences but I definitely also experienced a lot of that of that distance um, and I love what you said about making space for your ethnicity because I feel like that is something that I've done a lot for myself in recent years and I think that a lot of other Latinx who have these experiences of being distanced can really like tap into that kind of language around it. And what does it look like to make space? Well, sometimes that looks like this one recipe that I can ask my mom for that she always made growing up and that, and I can learn that recipe. Sometimes I hope it's it mofongo. Something as small. <laughs> I haven't made mofongo yet. I should, I should do that. My mom had never made mofongo. So like, I didn't even know about it until one time we went there and we ate it. And my mom was like, oh yeah, this is mofongo. And, and my dad and I were like, this is amazing. Why didn't we know about this before? <laughs> so, but, but yeah, you know, it, it could, it could be as small as, as music, TV shows, you know, whatever, whatever might be the entry point. And, and certainly, certainly learning Spanish, mm -hmm. although I know there, there's some discourse around like, you know, some people might say, oh, you don't, you don't speak Spanish, you're not really Latinx, you're not really this, you're not really that because you don't speak Spanish, and there's a whole discourse that, that can be had around that, but, but I mean, at least I, for, for me, I think there is something to be said about right. learning Spanish when you didn't have that growing up and half of your family speaks Spanish and you grew up with this experience of visiting them and not being able to understand anything that was going on. I'm glad you mentioned that though. You know, Taylor, you mentioned something really, I think lots of folks who are Latinx, right? They may not even identify as Latinx, right? They, they, the origin is there, their, their background, some of their family or their family may have 
carried with them those experiences and may, they may not have transmitted all of those experiences down to their children. And so we're left with, for whatever reason it is, I mean, my frustration with my mother aside, right. <laughs> like, I don't know what the circumstances, not all circumstances are the same, right? And, and I, it's important for me to affirm as, an, as one Latinx to another Latinx, right? To affirm the Latinidad of an individual, even when they're, when they don't have all of those check boxes, right? You don't, there's no, there's not, there's not an official list where you have to, you know, check off at every box in order to be a quote unquote real Latina, right? Or a real Latina. And, and I think quite frankly, it's, it's a load of bull, right? <laughs> I, th mm -hmm. I think yeah. that just because language is, is a part of it, right? But language isn't the only thing, right? There's lots of other ways in which we can engage with our ethnic origin and with our ethnicity and with our culture and with our traditions that don't necessarily have to be fed through this one-size-fits-all model. The beauty of, of being Latinx is that there are so many different forms and varieties and diverse, you know, and diverse groups of individuals that are Latinx, right? When we look at out west, we look at the west, southern western, the Chicanx, right? The midwestern Chicanx Latinx, right? When we look at the... 30, I think there are more than 30 Spanish-speaking countries in the world that have been colonized at some point in time and that Spanish is their primary language. So Latin America is huge. And from Mexico all the way down to, and even, and even Brazil, they yeah. don't speak Spanish. They speak right. Portuguese, but they are Latinx. Absolutely. <laughs> and so if, the Spanish, if, if Spanish was the only criteria, then... It's not a very good criteria, right, for being Latinx, because look at Brazil. You know, Brazil is very much part of Latin America. And I know in our other conversations, I get really defensive of my Latinx siblings who may not know a whole lot of Spanish or may not have had that exposure. And I'm like, no, no, they're very much Latinx. <laughs> because, you know, when one of us is attacked, we are all mm -hmm. Right. You know, because I may make, uh, Arcapurria, and somebody in another Latinx may make tacos. And that doesn't make me, just because I don't make tacos and that's not part of my Latinx identity, that doesn't mean that it's any less Latinx. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I have a group of friends in a group chat, and we're from all over the world. And there's a Brazilian and a Venezuelan in the chat and sometimes the Brazilian is like wait am I do I even like count as this and, and also I mean she's actually in Brazil so they don't like outside of the United States they're not even really using Latinx the way that we're using it in the United States so, like that's a whole thing but it's just interesting like I am also I also affirm her the Brazilian in this I'm, I'm like yeah when I use this word I'm also talking about you it's not just people that are speaking Spanish so, yeah, it's absolutely much broader than the people that want to be exclusionary, which is nice because it does, it does bring in so many more people. It, do, it does invite so many more people to begin claiming that part of themselves. And I think one of the things that I did in my own life was, for many years, I, I denied the Puerto Rican side of me because I felt that I didn't really count. So... And because I am super, super white, you know, a lot of people, they don't know that I'm Latina unless I say something. So that in recent years has become such a source of, of power and wholeness for me is to not only understand that people don't know unless I say it, but then also to just say it so much more often because I can be read a certain way and I can navigate the world a certain way because of the way that I'm read and perceived. But I like to declare what my reality actually is to begin poking holes in that a little bit for people. And I think, I think it's super important because even, even our ideas of what a Latinx person looks like come from media, come from whatever, and it very often is a person of medium brown skin tone Right. which really excludes it. In, I mean, yes, it represents a lot of people, but it also excludes a lot of people and, and makes it much more difficult for people who aren't Latinx to understand that 
we literally have all the skin shades that can exist. Right. And to affirm, to add to what you're saying, yeah, go to ahead. affirm that you are not half Latina, that you are you are Latina just as much as you are whatever your other side of your, your of your family is on your on your other parents' side. You know, it, it's not it's not a fifty fifty. You know, we're not when it comes to when it comes to our ethnicity, right? This is not, we're not talking about genetics. We're not talking about genes or biology. We're talking about we're talking about culture. We're talking about ethnicity. We're talking about what's in your be and yes, what's also you're running through your veins, right? And so it, it so it's not just when it comes to it though. We're we're not we're not thinking about and we're not looking at oh how much is you know how much of uh, of, of Latinx blood you have you know or what percentage of when, no as as long as there is right uh, as as long as there is latinx blood running through your veins that's all we care about right that there is a sense of belonging for you and for us right that we belong to a family of people that can relate right that we have experiences and that our families have had experiences and our family's family and ancestors have had experiences and so that has been a part of that's a part of your story right that's a part of how you came to the world right and so i never see it as oh she's she, he, she, or they are half Latinx. No, not at all. And, and I think we have to start dismantling those ideas. And, you know, and, and as far as like what people think is Latinx or not Latinx, you know, quite frankly, we are a plethora of shades, right? That for that's for sure. And I, I support the, the stereotype, <laughs> I support this, the stereotypical image of the medium brown skin <laughs> just because it's important for not only latinx folks to be visible but also afro latinx to be yeah. visible but then people tend to forget that there's not a, a latinx latinexometer right. <laughs> you know i've heard years ago that from my own family oh tore blanquito que lindo like oh how how cute you know he's He's white. He's you know he's a white boy celebrating that I pass as a, as as a gringo. You know, and that makes me feel guilty. <laughs> but part of the guilt is setting that guilt aside. Like part of the experience is setting the guilt aside, and and understanding that I have a privilege that I should understand in a humble way, and that I should use for those of my Latinx siblings who don't have this privilege of being a lighter shade right yeah but yeah but then people forget right and they forget because you may be so you know immersed in other circles and other cultures that may have been other cultures may have and other traditions may have rubbed off uh, on on you and and you may have learned to appreciate them as well and there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time we have i, I think and i'll speak in the i form right that i think that we have to make sure personally that we ourselves are making space for our own ethnicity, right? That we're making space for our own identity and all parts of our identity. We forget that when we walk into a room, and this is, this is part of what we do with Proyecto, right? We talk about intersectionality. We talk about how we walk into different spaces and we tend to forget other parts of our identity at the door. And so how do we bring that with us? How do we make sure that that part of our identity is always at the forefront of, you know, of, of all of the things, of, of everything else that we bring to the table? And finding those opportunities, I think, is what's important for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of Proyecto, one of the other, or I guess two of the other intersectionalities that are really key with, um, with the work that we're doing there is this this crossover between our spirituality, our religion, and our, our sexuality and gender identity. So I'd love for you to, to talk a bit about your, your spirituality and your sexuality and how those things, you mentioned that, you know, they were, they were pretty separate in your life at first, really hard to reconcile, and then you got to a place of being able to reconcile them. So take us on that journey a little bit. So that this is, I'm going to try to do this in a nutshell <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, because this is definitely a journey. I would also call it a roller coaster, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I was raised, so part of, part of my upbringing 
right? There's some, there's some espiritismo, right? There's some santeria in my family. There's some Catholicism origin, right? Catholicism and santeria in my family, you know, religious origin, right? But then ever since the conversion of my great-grandmothers, or at least one of my great-grandmothers, to evangelical Christianity, that has that opened the door for Pentecostalism in my family, and hence I was raised in the Pentecostal church, uh, in the Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church, which is, again, in many ways, very different from a lot of English-speaking, but it, there's a lot of nuances, right, that culturally that present in, you know, themselves in these communities. And so I was raised with the mentality that, obviously, right, that we all know what conservative evangelicals think about homosexuality, right? The sin, Sodom and Gomorrah, they take a lot of really weak theology and they try to build a case against you know, homosexuality around like, what, five or five or six scriptures <laughs> that from, from an entire Bible of 66 books. But anyhow, I believed it, right? That was my reality. How, as a kid, knowing that you're different and not knowing what, it is, right? Because you're not at that point of puberty, you're not at that adolescent, you know, you know, hormones aren't kicking in, you don't, I mean, I guess you admire, you know, I guess I admired the other boys when I was in kindergarten or first grade, but I didn't really know what it was. I did feel different. I, I felt something that was different. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. So as I grew up, I started realizing that I had these inclinations. I had, I was attracted when I, especially when I got into my adolescent years, when I started becoming more fond of <laughs> more more fond in, in, in that in the curious way, right? And the and the boyfriend, girlfriend, thinking about these sorts of things. That I felt that way not a, maybe not so much about girls, but with the boys. That I thought boys were pretty and pretty handsome. But I knew that it was wrong. And so I I would ignore it. I was like, oh no, no, this is not me. This is not who I'm supposed to be, at least. And you know what that does to a kid? Like, mm-hmm. to feel that, that what you're feeling, that essentially part of who you are, because you couldn't control it. I couldn't control it. I couldn't decide for myself, oh, I, I don't like this. No, I, I just liked it. You know, I, and I like talking to, to certain boys, you know, and I, when I was 12, 13, I was really troubled. And, and I can't, express how frustrated I felt. I, I can't express to you how guilty I felt when I kissed the boy in the hallway around the, <laughs> around from, or around from the school, you know, nobody saw it. I felt so troubled, you know, and, and I remember distinctly having conversations with my, or hearing my parents tell me, this is wrong, that's a sin, that's not how God made things to be, that this is not God created, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and oh my, how much I heard that. I heard it in the church. I heard it in Bible study. I heard it in Sunday school. I heard it in the youth group. I heard it at home. I heard it from my family. I've heard slurs from my own family. And so I didn't want to be that person, right? I didn't want, the last thing that I wanted was to be hated and to not feel part of this group, this, of my Latinx community, let alone the Christian community that I also felt a part of. For me, the Latinx community was, or the Latino community, because there's no such thing as Latinx for for these communities. I I felt that I was going to be ripped away from all of that. And it felt scary. And it felt terrible. And I I fought with it. And I remember as I grew older in my teenage years, I was so involved in the church. So involved. I got of everything. I got sat down for nothing, only because I told my pastor that I had attractions to other guys and that I didn't know what to do about it. I was just so consumed by it that I had to tell someone and I told my pastor, I sat down with my pastor and I said, I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not, it's not like I'm in a relationship. It's not like I'm doing anything illicit to the church, to this church that is in the eyes of this church. But I have these attractions and it's bothering me and it's, and it's, I feel so guilty and I feel, I was just so desperate to reach out and I was sat down. Everything that I was doing, everything that I was involved in, we used to call that in, in the church I grew up in, we used to call that disciplina, where you, if you did something wrong, you were sat down, you were taken, 
all of the things that you were involved in, those things were taken away from you so that you could sit down and reflect. You could still attend church, but you were essentially the marginalized. And the leadership of the church might have said, oh, no, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to signal you out or humiliate you. But in, in a very great way, and not great as in positive, but great as in big, in a big way, that's exactly what they were doing. So you had, you had to sit there, go to church. Everybody would, people would look at you and ask you, oh, why aren't you doing this in the church? Why aren't you participating in that? Why aren't you in leadership with the youth? And that was a humiliating thing, right? Oh, no, I'm just, you know, taking some. And so then everybody else and their mother had, you know, had heard the rumor of what was going on. I went through exorcism. I threw myself on the floor. I kicked and screamed. I did everything I thought I needed to do. I played the part. And and now if you talk to people or deacons from, from back in the day from the church, I grew up. They would tell you, oh, no, no, he was he was possessed. We were actually doing an exorcism. No, no, I wasn't. I was very much conscious. I was so, but I believed it so much that I actually believed that that was, that was happening to me. And now that I distinctly remember, those experiences you never forget. If it happened to me, how many more young people might this be happening to? Were they being brought to these camps of, you know, like Exodus and, and these camps of, of conversion therapy. And I was brought to therapy. Uh, my pastor was, ha, had, um, had a degree in psychology and, and psychotherapy. And I was brought weekly on a weekly basis to talk about, I didn't want, this made me feel uncomfortable, but I hated myself. The very church that I thought that loved God and that loved me and that embraced me made me feel worse. Yeah. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to breathe. I didn't want to be because there was, I didn't find, there wasn't a way for me to have a relationship with God. It wasn't sensible to me because everything I knew about God, everything I knew theologically was fed to me with a spoon. And I didn't know how else to, to engage with God. I didn't know how else. And so long story short, I thank God that I, I had an encounter, no pun intended, right? Encuentro. Yeah. <laughs> I had an encuentro, right? At the profound encounter. And I remember I was home. I, I stopped going to church. I was in my room. I was nearly, I had knelt down to pray. I just threw myself on the floor. I don't think I was, I was just sobbing. And I remember that verse that said, El enjugará toda lágrima de tu sol. God will dry every tear from your eyes or eyes, you know, and I threw myself and just, just sobbing or crying, asking God to take this cup away from me. The same words that Jesus said, take this cup away from me. If it's in your will, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want to be gay anymore. I hate myself. I hate that I'm like this. I was supposedly delivered and here I am still being attracted to boys and being unhappy because I can't engage romantically like everybody else can. I can't have this gift and I can't enjoy this gift of being connected to someone in a loving way. I can't explore that. And I, I, I can't see my life being quote unquote normal. And I cried. And I remember hearing the voice of God in the deepest parts of my heart, of my being. I felt as though God was speaking into my bones. And I, when I tell you that I heard God say, there is nothing for me to take away from you. I love you. I created you. And from that moment, there was no more doubt. Well, <laughs> I still battled after that, right? With a lot of theological, but in that moment, there was no doubt in that moment that I felt God's love, that I knew that God loved me. And from, and then, that with that experience, not not everybody has these experiences. But from that moment on, I started searching. Into I started asking questions about scripture. I started challenging everything that I believe. I started challenging all of the theology, all of the and all of the damage that had been done. 
And slowly, little by little, I began to see the inclusive embrace of God. And I can't, I, I can't trade that. And I, I've shared this story with other folks that have been, quote unquote, delivered right from homosexuality. And, oh, God has cleaned me, has cleansed me, and I'm liberated, I'm delivered. And I'm, I just listen. And, and I say, okay, if you're happy, you know, if whatever's going on right now in your life, if you're married to, you know, I, I, a friend of mine, someone I grew up with in the church, my father was a co-pastor, was a pastor when I was young. My, my mother and dad weren't together, but in the city where I grew up here in New Haven, my dad was also a pastor. So being a pastor's son, being a pastor's kid isn't easy either. <laughs> there was so much more on, on my plate with having that, that label or, or, or having all eyes on me, right? So when I started asking questions and I started growing theologically and as my understanding grew, my love for God and my experience, my relationship with God also grew. And so I had gone back to the church, not the same church, but to the church of the, my founding pastor. At that time, he was pastoring another congregation. And so I, I became a member of that congregation, came back. and was very involved, but my theology was different. And so essentially, I went back into the closet. <laughs> but that didn't last a long time. <laughs> Sooner or later, I had met this boy that I really liked. And I, I was pretty sick and tired of hiding it, of hiding, you know, what I wanted with him was a relationship. And I couldn't have that under the table. I couldn't have that behind a curtain like the Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> you know, I had to, I sat with my pastor. And also before rumors, because <laughs> certain people in the church community already knew that I was very much gay. Before, I, I didn't want somebody to come to my pastor and tell my pastor what I wanted to tell my pastor at that moment. But I had, I was so much involved in ministry and I was the youth director and I was, I was 18 and I was at, at my, <laughs> at my prime of ministry, like I was doing everything, you know, and music and worship. And, and so I had, I had attended that year. I had attended Bible college and I sat down with my pastor and I said, look, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is why I believe it. And after having built my case and having explained to him all of this, all of my theological position and my experience and my experience with God, this man who was an icon in my community for the Pentecostal movement among Latinx community, founding pastor of the, of the evangelical Pentecostal movement in, in New Haven of the Spanish speaking community. He looked at me and he said, Edwin, I'm not going to judge you. And he said, Edwin, if it were up to me and if I didn't have to answer to somebody else and where I could lose my, yeah, well, granted he could have, but, he wasn't there yet. But he said to me, if it were up to me, you would still be here. I don't, I don't care about that. I have a nephew that is gay and I go visit him and I've never, never judged him. And, and I, I know what I've preached in the past, but if it were up to me, you'd still be here because God uses you. And I see God in you. And my jaw hit the floor. You could hear. <laughs> that was amazing. And sure, it could have gone better, but I knew that I had to go, that I couldn't be there anymore. Essentially, he, he told me, he said, said, well, you know, if you want to be open about this and if you want to be, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be in the closet. That's my whole point. That's why I'm here. And so I respect that he, he got that far. But essentially, I was kicked out of, the, of my Bible college. You're not kicked out, but, you know, sort of let go gracefully. It could have gotten a lot worse. But... I'm here now. And perhaps I could write a whole book of my journey, right? I, I could talk about how I got to the United Church of Christ. I could talk about how I, I'm still a, a progressive Pentecostal, right? And how I found the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. And I could talk about all those things, but I am truly blessed, Taylor, to have had this experience with God. And I think that I'm called. No, I don't think. I know that I'm called shed light on other people's experiences and to be an influence or an inspiration to other folks who may also feel like there is no way out, that there's no way that they can continue to have their relationship with God, 
that they can continue to practice their religious tradition and connect with God in whatever ways that is. And also feel blessed in that their sexuality is a part of their identity and that that's part of being whole. And that your spirituality and your sexuality don't have to be at odds, that you can bring them into synergy and that you can connect them as much as you can connect your Latinidad. And, and that everything, each and every one of these parts is a part of who you are. And that if you remove one, then you're not who you are. Because if you knock down or take away one of those things, everything else comes crumbling down. Similar to the bowling game that Reverend Elvet Mendez Angulo created and has gifted us at Proyecto. So that's in a nutshell my experience. And I'm, there's only one word to describe all this. And it's blessed. And the only exodus that I've experienced is the exodus of harming theology and harming words that were embedded into my heart and my life and my soul that I had to spend years crying and dismantling with hard work. So that's the only exodus that I've experienced, that exit of all of those ideologies that were a part of my self-hate and that, that exodus that has brought me into the promised land of the land of, of being whole, of being blessed with where I am now and feeling as though I got to the promised land. This is where I need to be. This is where it happens. This is where God is going to do what God is going to do in my life now that I'm whole, now that I feel complete, that I have brought all these things together with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was a sermon. <laughs> Sorry, you can't invite a preacher oh. to do an interview. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I just I just get to sit here and, and take it all in. That really, I mean, wow. That Every time I've gotten to hear you share your story, there's always little bits and pieces that maybe you, you didn't mention the last time I heard it or you say it in a little bit of a different way. Um, and just each time it, it feels so, so fresh and so real. And it really does feel exactly like you said, like shedding a light. And it's, I, I think it's just so important just to hear what your story is. It can be so affirming, I think, to so many people. We don't, we don't even know who, who could be hearing it or, or who we might be reaching. Um, and, I, and I think it's a, a beautiful segue into talking a little bit more about the, the work that you're currently doing, like some of, the, some of the advocacy work that you've done, your specific things that you're doing as a pastor right now. So tell us, like, what are you doing what, now that we've gotten all this wonderful background of you and your experience? What are some tangible things that you're doing or you have done that you just really want to tell the world about? Well, I'm a bivocational pastor. I work for the Sydney New Haven Board of Education and as an administrative assistant. So I'm quite savvy with administrative work, right? I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm good at it. And so within the community, I'll talk about that first. Within the community, I work in the largest K-8 school in my city. And so it's 70 to 80% Latinx, the students. It's a bicultural or multicultural, multilingual school where there's a strong newcomer program and a strong bilingual program where students can learn both in Spanish and in English simultaneously. And... I'm proud of being at, at where I am, and I'm proud of being a support to the administration of the school that caters to these needs and to, these, and to this curriculum and this, these programs. There are lots of, with that being said, with a lot of immigrants and refugees coming into our school, you know, straight, oftentimes straight from other countries, there's, we have a legal clinic, a, a legal aid clinic that comes on Tuesdays from 9 to 11. There's across the street from us, there is uh, community action agency. And so I'm constantly connecting parents with, whenever immigration becomes a concern. I'm constantly contacting my colleagues, both from the religious community that are involved in sanctuary and sanctuary movement and connecting with them with resources. And I think that my pastoral work bleeds into this other secular work, right? And that I'm constantly watching for opportunities 
to bypass immoral laws, right, uh, of trying to separate families. And my effort, right, bleeds, my pastoral efforts bleed into my secular work. And so I often look to see who I can help. And I'm asking parents, are you okay? What do you need? We have a family resource center down downstairs at, at our school with two classrooms that are there to help support parents in, in different ways. And so that's what I do as, uh, in my secular job. Pastorally, I am right now, I'm an independent coach, both for clergy and lay leadership with revitalizing congregations. So I, right now I'm coaching churches and pastors in the Illinois Conference of the United Church of Christ. And I'm also looking to do more of that in the East Coast where I reside at the moment. And so right now at the church where I'm at, Manantial de Gracia, United Church of Christ, also known as Spring of Grace, it's a bilingual congregation with Baptist origin and Pentecostal and Lutheran tradition. There you go. <laughs> uh, oh, and Methodist, of course. I have a, we have a, large, a Methodist family there. So I'm doing work there with worship, right? I'm doing a lot of pastoral worship ministry, looking to strengthen the ministry where I'm at now with coaching, using my coaching skills and, and training. And so where, you know, where coaching is the partnering up with clients. And, uh, and engaging through powerful questions to help inspire and expand and maximize their potential, right? And so that's, that's what I'm doing right now. And a lot of itinerary preaching. I often go to different conferences to bring workshops around Latinx spirituality or Latinx identity, LGBTQ justice. And over the last few years, I've been involved with the New Sanctuary Connecticut Network. And so I, what I do is, a lot of activism. I, I attend lots of gatherings in a lot of sanctuary churches that have been successful in obtaining uh, asylum and, and, you know, helping families and individuals attain uh, asylum and getting their case heard by, by a judge that's willing to listen to their case rather than leave it up to immigration control enforcement. And so at the heart of everything I'm doing right now, it's largely prophetic, right? I'm moving around a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching and speaking and, and, and facilitating conversation around the country. And uh, Taylor, you, you can speak to this because we've been together. <laughs> we've, we were recently in Dallas back in January of 2020. And so this is the work that I'm doing. This is the prophetic work that I'm doing, sanctuary work, connecting individuals with resources, and it may not be, I may not be, a, you know, the largest leader in the movement, and I don't have to be. It's simply just supporting my work. It's simply just supporting families by connecting them with resources and, and networking with other pastors and sanctuary churches is, I'm fine with that. That makes me proud, right? It makes me proud of, of the work that I do, of the church that I belong to. And so right now, I can't say enough how exciting all this is, right, to continue to to do this work, and, and specifically with these three things, with, with immigration and justice, with Latinx justice and theology, uh, or liberation theology, which I don't think there's enough of. LGBTQ education and understanding and, and facilitation of workshops and, and uh, LGBTQ theology, those are the things that I'm involved in right now, and it keeps me pretty busy. So, uh, you know, learning to say no is extremely important. But I, the prognosis or the what's in my future is nothing different than what I'm already involved in. I, I have room for, for more. And <laughs> so if anybody who's listening wants to become involved and in, in who lives in, in the New England region, you let me know. <laughs> I know Taylor can give you my information. We can get connected and and we can start working. There's a lot of work to do. Well, speaking of that, tell us, you know, where people can follow you and keep up with your work. For sure. You can follow me on social media at the Rev Perez. Also, my website, therevperez.com. Jack Perez is actually pronounced Perez, but um, <laughs> therevperez.com. You can follow me, subscribe to my blog. I suppose I have, I've been neglectful of my blog, but you can search for all of the things that I'm involved in and I will periodically upload links to some of the, some of the things that are going on with support, a clergy supportive legislation that, that is intended to, to work on the behalf of communities of color and that speak to racist policies that, you know, uh, against the racist policies that exist. You can follow me 
on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at the Rev Perez. And so by all means, reach out and I would love to stay connected. Awesome. Awesome. Well, the last thing that I'd like to ask you about, as you know, one of the, uh, the toolkits that we developed with Proyecto has a story, a passage that, that you've written. Would you read it for us? Oh, no, for sure. This, I, I think that this is a wonderful way to, um, I suppose, to conclude. On the Racism Toolkit, I wrote what's called About Colorblindness. And it starts with Psalm 146, verse 8, and it reads, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And I wrote, it disconcerts me to hear, oh, I'm colorblind. I believe this assertion is deceptive, fraudulent, a cheap cop-out, although perhaps not intentionally, to assert that racism and ethnocentrism aren't threats. This assertion has been followed by quoted scriptures, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. This seems to imply that we shouldn't focus on outward appearances, but instead on what is on the inside of the person, like God does. Although I'm not in agreement with the text in an idealist sense, it would be wonderful to have never lived the horrific history that hangs on our necks and that has formed our narrative of coerced oppression by the white cis man. If God loves us all the same, if we all have been made in God's image and likeness, even in the midst of our differences, then why can't we see each other? I, as a Latino with European features, understand that although I am a person of color, ethnically, I am aware of the advantage I have of quote-unquote passing as a white male, racially. I remember being celebrated for being born whiter than the rest of my family. They alluded that whiter is prettier even among different-hued Latinx folks. I remember hearing, this kid is black, but beautiful, speaking of someone's child, and once more demonstrating the colonized indoctrination in our Latin American minds that white is superior. Racism is not only internalized in white people, but has also been taught to us as people of color. I may be a fair-skinned Latino, yet I will never abandon my entire identity. The rhythms of bomba y plena have formed parts of who I am. It's my inheritance. The Taino and African Caribbean cuisine has curbed my appetite and taste. I may look white, but I refuse to mark white on the U.S. census that is coincidentally this year or any other application because my race isn't worn on my skin, but woven by my ancestry and into my ethnicity. Besides, when I speak certain words or when, I, or when my last name is read aloud, stereotypes might begin to form in people's minds. I am proud of who I am, just as God loves me, and with pride I will catapult myself into counteracting the systemic oppressions that persist among my people, especially with those who aren't quote-unquote passing. I'm aware and quote-unquote woke, and I will continue to see color, which will not be taken away from me. I'm here to stay. I will speak as much Spanish as I want. I will continue to dance my salsa and do it well. My musica jibara, my merengue, my bachata. I will not assimilate, but integrate as my full self. If there is not room, I will make room and form front lines. Like Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will not bow to an idol, in this case, white supremacy. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The words all people include all races and ethnicities. God does not desire assimilation or uniformity. God wants unity and diversity. That is what we are created for. I can't change the world alone, but together, if we awaken, we can cleanse ourselves from racism and its long-term effects, yet it 
must start with identifying our own levels of privilege first. So, are you still colorblind? Wow. <laughs> that That is just a very powerful piece, Edwin. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for reading it. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. These are the spaces that need to be created. And so I appreciate you and I appreciate my colleagues at Proyecto Encuentro de Gracia. Thank you all so much for listening. If you liked today's episode, drop us a note at EncuentrosLatinx at gmail.com. Be sure to check out Proyecto de Gracia y Bienvenida on Facebook to keep up with this podcast and see more of our content. You can follow me personally on Instagram at TaylorRama and Twitter at TaylorRamaj. If you like poetry, you can find my books on Amazon. We hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.